0: So my contention through this conversation we're having on Leviticus is that the book of Leviticus and the Bible on the whole represent uh, the, the word of a God who is good and generous and faithful and kind, forgiving and loving and interested in us, which I think for most of us is sort of a given. Like we, even if you're not sure what you think about Christianity and that stuff, like you assume that if God is real, then he's probably good. Because that's what you've been told. Like ever since you were a kid. If I grew up in vacation Bible school. How many of you went to vacation Bible school when you were kids? Just most, almost three-fourths of the room probably. Went to VBS when we were kids. We've been singing about the goodness of God since we had diapers on, you know. We've been singing about the goodness of God all morning this morning. do you pay attention to the songs we sang? You are good. You are good. You know, you love us like a father's love with a reckless love. Like we assume good things about God. And all, the only reason I say that, the only thing I want you to know about that is that the idea of a good and generous, benevolent, forgiving, self-sacrificing God may seem normal to us today. But 3,000 years ago, in the culture, and the world that gave birth to Leviticus, the idea of such a God would have been unthinkable. Unthinkable. There had never, ever been a God spoken of in such a way. There had never, ever been a God who was interested in anyone else but himself or herself in the case of some of the ancient goddesses. The ancient mythologies that other cultures that that predated the Hebrew culture, like the ancient mythologies in Mesopotamia and, and Egypt even, all told stories about self-interested gods so their creation stories were often like this. The gods needed someone to prepare them food. Gods, the gods needed someone to serve them. And so the reason they made us was because they needed labor. They needed slave labor. And so they made human beings for that reason. And these gods were not interested in our health or our holiness or our happiness. These gods, the ancient gods, were interested in what we could do for them. And that was it. So, enter this God onto that scene. The God of Leviticus, which to us seems a little outdated and weird and archaic. But you need to understand that when this God entered that scene, this God was new. The God of the Torah was new. And this God was different. This God said things like in, in uh, Exodus chapter 34 this God said, I am the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. As he passed before Moses, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then he says, forgiving sins and transgressions to the thousandth generation. Not just the one standing in front of me, sacrificing to me because I am high and mighty, forgiving to the thousandth generation, y'all. This was a different kind of God. And I know that the God in the Bible, especially the early Old Testament gets redundant. I know he's repetitive. I know that's why many of you have tried to read Leviticus and you've given up because, okay, you are the Lord. We get it. You said it a thousand times. You are the Lord, you are our God. If we just follow your ordinances, be holy as I'm holy, okay, we get it. But why is this God in Leviticus so repetitive? Listen, if something's repeated in the Bible, you know it's important. The reason this God is so repetitive is because he's trying to train the Hebrew people to think and conceive differently of who God is. Because in the ancient Egyptian culture that the Hebrews had lived in for generations, y'all, in the ancient Egyptian culture... There were hundreds of gods. And if you can imagine there being like a different God for every facet of your life. And so if you've got a problem at work, you went to see the God of the harvest. Because everybody was farmers back then. So you went to see the, the God of the harvest to see if you could try to find a way to make him happy. So he would send the rain. And if if you couldn't get pregnant, you went to see the goddess of fertility. Because, you know, she must be angry with you if you can't get pregnant. And so let's go and try to make this right. Let's bring everything that we have and offer it up to her altar. Or if you can't get a good night's sleep, you go and see the god of sleep. Or if, you know, you've had a hard day at work and you're on your way home and you stop at Specs And all they've got on the shelf is Bud Light Lime. That's all they've got. You go and offer something to the goddess of beer, and there was a goddess of beer. And if there was only Bud Light, Lime at Specs, it's because the goddess of beer hates you. (laughs) So you had to go and make amends. And so you can imagine the psychology behind such theology. You were constantly afraid, constantly anxious. Perpetually walking on eggshells around these angry gods. The gods weren't good. The gods weren't forgiving. They didn't care about you. They didn't want what's best for you, they wanted what's best for them. And so you would go and make sacrifices and offerings to them in the hopes that they wouldn't be mad anymore and your life would get better. And if there was a drought and your family was starving, you went to the God of the harvest and said, please, oh, please, oh, please. And then you would go home and the drought would continue. Then what? You go and give a bigger offering and a bigger one and a more precious one. You give all your grain, all the, the, your livestock, the blood and the money, everything you can offer up, you give until there's nothing left to give. This is where we get the very common practice at the time of child sacrifice, by the way. Because if you've given everything you have and the drought's still going on and your family's going to starve, what are you going to do? The God is still angry at you. That's the scene that this God enters into. The God of Leviticus, the God of the Torah, the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah. That God comes onto the scene and says, No, listen, listen. I am holy. And he says it dozens of times. I am holy. I am holy. I am holy. That means, he's saying, I am set apart. I am different. I am not like the gods you knew in Egypt. I'm not like the gods you assimilated to in Egypt. And then then he says, you be holy too. What he's saying is that y'all should be different too. I'm not like the gods in Egypt. Y'all don't be like the people in Egypt. Let's do something new. And so Leviticus, far from being something antiquated and outdated, Leviticus represented a new beginning, a fresh start. It was grace upon grace at the time that it was written. And that is how I think we should uh, approach it as well as a, a story about a God who is love. That all brings us to today. We're going to talk about the climax of Leviticus. I gave you a study guide where it's, it talks about the structure of Leviticus in the very top of that study guide. The reason I included that is I wanted you to understand why Leviticus is put together the way that it is. You can't really cover everything we want to cover in just four weeks. And so I wanted you to know the structure of it is important. And one of the reasons you struggle to get through it is because it doesn't seem like it's laid out right. It's like you start with the sacrifices and then you get to the priestly rules. And then you get to other rules. And then there's the day of atonement, chapter 16. And then after chapter 16, you get back to rules. And then you get to more priestly stuff. And then you get to more sacrifice. It doesn't make sense. Why didn't they put all the sacrifices together? It's because structure mattered more to them than it does to us today. When they put the book of Leviticus together, they were building a pyramid like the ones they had seen in Egypt. And the top of that pyramid was chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the highest, holiest day to this day in the Hebrew calendar in the Jewish year. And so we're going to talk about that some um, today. This is how that day was to start. All the people were to gather together in one place. All the people, not in disparate little communities, but all the people came together once a year, and this would happen. This is the beginning of it. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. Leviticus 16, uh, verses 3 and 4. This is how Aaron is to enter. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So he brings the bull and the ram. And then, and then uh, God tells Aaron how to dress. He says you must dress a certain way with certain linens. And, and these are the sacred garments, God says. And so God tells Aaron, the priest, the high priest of the people, to wash himself in water before he puts on the sacred clothes. So what is going on here that God is telling the priest what to wear? God is telling the priest how to dress and how to wash before that and, and you know, then how to sacrifice the animals in a certain way. This is like high theater. I mean, you've got a lot going on here and the question is why? Why does anything have to die at all? <laughs> Why, why sacrifice animals? Peter would be very upset with the Day of Atonement in chapter 16 of Leviticus. Like, this is uncomfortable for us. We who have pets are highly uncomfortable with this idea. But listen, what's happening here, it's high theater, it's, it's high drama for a reason. God is trying to communicate something to the people. That sin is something serious and should be taken seriously. And that the wages of sin are death. And that when, uh, when, when you're living in sin, it must be atoned for. It must be covered. The word atonement means a cover, so it must be covered, right? And so I know for us it seems like really brutal. But listen, what's the alternative to not taking sin seriously? It's even more brutal, is it not? If nothing is lost, like If that was your animal and you were a farmer or a herder and you, because of your sin, one of your animals had to die as a sacrifice because of your sin, you thought more about that sin next time. But without this, uh, without this accountability, without thinking being made to think about sin. Sometimes I think uh, sin can go unchecked and it's just, you know, it's anarchy, It's, it's chaos. And so God would bring all the people together and Aaron would start it off that way and then all the people would confess all of their communal sins together, right? So all of the promises they broke that year, all of the money they misspent that year, all the time they wasted that year, all the bad websites they visited that year, they would bring together all their communal sins. Like, can you imagine the same thing happening today? This would look like all the Christians in Houston gathering once a year at NRG together to confess all our communal sins together. Can you imagine such a thing? That would be a very long service. All the ways we've misrepresented God, all the ways we've pushed more people away from Jesus than we've brought to Him, you know, all the ways we've ignored the fact that there's Thousands of brothels with sex slaves inside of them right under our noses and we act like they're not even there. All the ways that, that orphans go unadopted in Houston every year. All the ways we don't fully embody the people of God because if we behaved like Jesus, how many orphans would there be in Houston? Now that's profound. That's a cloud hanging over us. And that's the kind of situation, the kind of setting that Yom Kippur represented every year because sin must be dealt with. So the people came, bringing all their baggage, and then this would happen. Leviticus 16, verse 7 is where I'm going to start. Verses 7 through 10. Aaron shall take two goats... So he would take two goats from the community and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. This is going to make more sense in a second, I promise. In fact, the only way I feel like I can properly illustrate this is with some visual aids. And so I'd like to welcome out our special guests today. If I could, our two goats, could they make their way to the stage, please? Here they come. Oh, they're so happy to see me again. All right, come on out here. All right. Thank you. They're pretty chill now. They weren't this chill before. All right, come here. You don't play the bass. Come here. All right. Okay. Thank you. Okay, y'all, meet Lola and Stubby. <laughs> so named by my daughter about three hours ago. And y'all stop band at my at my goat. Oh, that was you. Oh, that was them out there. That was you. All right. So uh, so this is what would happen. Aaron would cast lots, which basically meant he, are we okay? There it is. Okay. <laughs> Not the first time. Uh, basically meant he would flip a coin. And the one who's, uh, who was uh, basically the winner of that coin toss uh, wasn't much of a winner because that would be the one sacrificed uh, for the sins of all the people gathered. And he would be sacrificed in front of all of us. We're not going to do that right now. So, uh, but since this one pooped on my stage, you got to go, okay? So uh, just pretend like he's gone. I'm going to leave him here, but you're dead, all right? So uh, Lola lives. And, and then what would happen next is that Lola, uh, Aaron would get uh, near Lola and put his, we good? Put his hands, come here, Lola, come here, come here, sweetie. All right, here we go. All right. I know, you don't like that at all. Okay, hey, leave, uh, leave, leave, uh, leave uh, Stubby out here so Lola doesn't lose her ever-loving mind like she did before. They're besties. They don't like to be separate. I know, I know. You don't want to know what just happened to Stubby, though. So Aaron would put his hands on Lola's head, and Aaron would um, say, this one is uh, Azazel. Azazel is a word that literally means to take away. To take away. And Aaron would place his hands on Azazel's head and symbolically impute all the sins of all the people under this one goat. So Azazel is where we get the, the word scapegoat. That's, that's the origin of the word scapegoat. So the Azazel was the very first scapegoat and what would happen next is Aaron would tie a red thread around the goat's horns symbolizing the blood of the people uh, as atonement for our sins and then this goat unlike uh, her buddy this goat got to live and they would get someone to lead the goat away from the assembly out into the wilderness where the goat would be set free Usually they would pay a Gentile, a non believer, to lead the goat out of the out of the assembly and into the wilderness. Why would they do that? Why why would the Jewish people not not want to be around this goat? Well, it's got all the sins of all the people on it. It's a very complicated goat. Like you don't want to, you don't want to be a part of all that. And so they would get a Gentile to do it. Are you a Gentile, sir? Oh, he's not a gentile, but he's going to do it anyway. You're not okay. I did not see that coming. All right. So, <laughs> all right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, you Jew, Jewish person. Thank you. I didn't see that coming, for real. So the uh, the they they would lead the Azazel, the scapegoat, away uh, with the sins of the people. All right. So that's the ritual of uh, Leviticus uh, 16, uh, the the day of atonement, all right? So uh, the, the question that this raises is if the first goat died for the sins of the people, then why was the second goat needed? So the first goat died for the sins of the people, and then we have an Azazel, another goat, a scapegoat, to take the sin of the people away. this is another thing that set the God of the Hebrews apart. Because this God didn't just temporarily forgive the sins that you'd committed in the past year. This God said, I'm about more than just temporarily forgiving your sins that you've committed recently. This God is in the business of taking sin away. So this God doesn't just forgive your sins. This God wants to remove sin. Which is a different thing. This is next level stuff here, theologically speaking, that this God is introducing. He says, I will forgive your sins first, but I'm also about something more, taking sin away, removing it. Okay, So this, for Christians, deeply important. This is why I said you can't take Jesus seriously without also taking Leviticus seriously. Because Jesus walks on the foundation of Leviticus. Leviticus is in so many ways the foreshadowing of Jesus. You kind of have to look for it, you kind of have to know the stories but in John chapter 19 especially, we find this foreshadowing popping up again and again where, uh, for example, you've got the two goats and as Jesus has been arrested, Pontius Pilate presents him to the people but he doesn't present Jesus alone, He, he presents two criminals. What was the name of the other one? Barabbas and basically, he cast lots, but instead of casting lots, he has a popularity contest, and he says, which one of these should be cut loose, and which one of these will be the Azazel? And so they cut Barabbas loose, and Jesus remained. And then in John chapter 19, they took him, the Roman soldiers took him, and they, they pressed a the crown of Thorns down on its head until he bled. And you can imagine how a head bleeds and how much blood would have been coming down. And do you remember when Aaron tied the red thread around the horns of the goat? And Then a Gentile led the scapegoat away out to the wilderness. And who was it that led Jesus out? But the Roman soldiers, Right? Gentiles that led Jesus out, carrying the sins of the world on his back. So this is why the Day of Atonement matters for Christians, because in Jesus, it finds its fulfillment, and it gets even better. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews explains what exactly all of this Means for us that God doesn't just forgive sins; He has removed sin in the by, through the death of Jesus. And He starts chapter ten by saying, "Look, we all know the blood of goats and the blood of bulls isn't enough to forgive sins for all time. Every time you sin again, you've got to take another bull or another goat and be forgiven again." But He says this one is different, and this is how He explains it in chapter ten of Hebrews. He says every it starts in verse eleven every priest stands day after day at his service. So again, daily services of forgiveness. Bring your animals to be sacrificed so you can be forgiven again. Offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time one single sacrifice for sins, all sins, Past, present, future sins. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. There were no more services to be had. No more sacrifices to be made. No more offerings to appease the gods. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. Because of Jesus. All offerings, all sacrifices... All religious services are pointless because we are free. The reason we're here today is not to appease the gods or one God. The reason we're here today is not in the hopes that God won't be mad at us anymore for all the bad things that we've done. The reason we come and worship in Jesus' name is different. It's not an obligation, it's not out of fear, it's out of freedom. It's for joy. It's to learn and grow closer to this God who is different, this God who is holy, this God who is love. The word sacrifice used throughout the Bible means to make holy. And every time the Hebrews made that offering, they were made holy for a time. And then they lived And became unholy again. Isn't that what happens? Isn't that what happens to all of us? Like you have a great moment at church or in your prayer time or whatever or you go on vacation and you find God again and then you come back thinking I'm going to be different now and 18 hours later you look outside and that same old goat is in your backyard again. And you're back to being who you were. Unholy. Unworthy. Unclean. And not in God's good graces. Look, sometimes it feels like Christians still don't get it. And I know we're just 2,000 years into this little experiment. Maybe we'll get it soon, but we still don't get the difference between the religions of old and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The religions of old said you're forgiven until you sin again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a once and for all atonement, a once and for all covering. You are covered. Your sin is covered. Your debt is covered. Why do you live like you're a slave? Why do you live like you're still in Egypt, still afraid, still anxious? This God doesn't induce more anxiety. This God takes it away. But we live as if nothing has changed. We live a lot like they did in Egypt, anxiously trying to make God happy with us and missing the point of our once and for all scapegoat and what it means for us today. It's like we don't see ourselves yet the way our Father sees us. I've shared the story before about the time I was arrested. And it wasn't for anything noble or good, like a protest. I was arrested when I was 18 years old for stealing a lot of street signs. A lot. And one night, over 35 street signs in the back of my truck. Yes, street signs, I'll explain. It was a subdivision, and all the streets were named after the, the developer's granddaughters. And my buddies and I found streets with our girlfriend's names on them. And so we started collecting Kelly Street and Amanda Street. <laughs> and, um, so uh, after a few hours, we had racked up several dozen uh, street signs. And uh, I was arrested, uh, taken to jail. And this was a big deal, because I lived in a small town. Everybody knew... My family, I was the preacher's kid. Everybody knew me and my dad. And uh, to top it off, it was the night before Easter Sunday. So um, bad timing, bad timing. (laughs) And I was in shock as they took me away and put me in that cell. I was worried about all the wrong things. Like I should have been worried about the fact that I stole more than enough to be brought up on felony charges. Felony charges might have, might have changed the course of my life. I'm not sure I'd be standing here today as a felon. I don't think the Methodist Church allows it. I'm not sure. Probably not. Although there's plenty of felons who spoke for God in the Bible, if you want to be honest about it. How are we doing? All right. Somebody just scored a goal in the World Cup. So. <laughs> Go, Germany. All right. So. Uh. So I I sat in that cell worried about all, I was worried. I'll tell you what I wasn't worried about. I I should have been worried about my felony uh, charges. I should have been, uh, you know, worried about my cellmates. Because I don't mean to be judgmental, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't their first night in the clink. Uh, They look like pirates. So I'm pretty (laughs) sure they had been there before. Should have been worried about the fact that the judge in my case was going to be the grandmother of my ex-girlfriend. Small town problems. And uh, she was not happy with me for breaking her granddaughter's. I, anyway, I was not worried about any of that. I was worried about one thing. I was worried about seeing my dad. Because <laughs> I knew that uh, somebody had gone to wake him and my mom up in the middle of the night. The nightmare scenario for parents getting the knock at the door in the middle of the night when your son's spending the night at some other uh, friend's house. I knew that they were on their way and I was dreading it. I was dreading it. And when they got there, the, the guard came to, to get me out of my cell and I walked from my cell in my new white jumpsuit um, and I sat down and they made me, at 18 years of age, talk uh, to my dad through the glass on the phone. It's one of those surreal moments. And I knew he'd be upset. And I knew we had a sunrise service to preach in about two hours. <laughs> and I knew I was in trouble. So I got on that phone and I just broke down. I ugly cried on that phone. Like, I'm scared. I'm sorry for whoever had that phone next. Uh, because I just slobbered and everything it was gross. But I'll never forget what happened next. It's been 20 years and I remember exactly the first words out of my father's mouth. From all the things that he could have said, Justifiably. <laughs> that day. First thing he said to me was, son, you're not a criminal. (laughs) You're not a criminal. And all I could think was, dad, I'm talking to you uh, on a phone through the glass (laughs) in a white jumpsuit. Pretty much the definition of a criminal. But he wanted me to know you're not a criminal. And I still can't really believe that those were the first words out of his mouth. I didn't understand it then, how passionately a good father's heart burns for his children to see themselves the way he sees them. How deeply a father loves, how much all he wants to, is for his kids to, to look in the mirror and see what he sees. Just potential perfection, you know, just glory and wonder and, and just awe. But instead, so often what we see when we look in the mirror is brokenness and, and, and you know, sin and, and mistakes and regret and what we are not. And all he wanted me to know then is who I am. Stop getting wrapped up in who I'm not. Right. So. So in in that moment, I couldn't understand it. Now as a father, I totally understand it. But it helps me to see just how badly we miss it sometimes. Because all Jesus came to do is to show us who we are in our father's eyes. To forgive us of our sins. To set us free. Now, that is the God of Leviticus. That is the God that we celebrate. That's the God we should worship and share with the city of Houston. Not someone, some God that is just so disappointed in you, so disappointed in this town, so disappointed in our sins. God's done with our sins. He's done with what's happened before. He's done with the mistakes that we've made. We're covered and free, so we should live as such. Y'all, I'm excited to see what could happen. In a city like Houston, as a church emerges that's decided to live free and to share that freedom with the world. Now listen, sin is still a serious thing. Sin still must be dealt with seriously. But it's not your sacrifices that will ever set you free. It's not your offerings that will ever be enough. What has already been given, what's already been laid down, what's already been Poured out is more than enough. God's own blood poured out for you was enough to cover any and everything you've ever done to separate yourself from him. That's the kind of God Jesus called you and created you to share with the people you live with, work with, the people you share this city with because the whole world needs to know That this God isn't angry, this God isn't disappointed, all of that is done with, and we are free. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, I pray that hearts and minds are changed and just broken in the best way possible today. That old habits, old ways of thinking give way to new possibilities. God, the promise that we are loved unconditionally and forgiven fully, like if that's true, it is a game-changer. If your sacrifice on the cross is really enough to cover all of our sin and all of our shame, it's really something different. But forgive us for the ways we've uh, just compromised and lived according to old religion rather than to the new gospel. And we pray for the courage to live free. In Jesus' name, amen.